You can tempt others to sin by discouraging them. You can tempt others to sin by your bad example, maybe a sinful lifestyle. You know, Peter says that elders are to be an example to the flock. That means they aren't to be extinguishers of fiery holiness by being legalistic and overly demanding and harsh on the people of God. That is to cause one of the little ones to sin because it discourages their spiritual life. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. This morning, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 9 again. Mark chapter 9 and... We want to look at verses 38 through 42. When you find your place there in Mark's gospel, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Mark 9, verses 38 through 42. The title of the message this morning, simply this, Misplaced Zeal. Misplaced Zeal. Picking up in verse 38, John said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated as we ask for the Lord's help and blessing on our text this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to have open ears, open hearts to your truth, that you may apply it to our souls for your glory so that we may honor you in a greater way, Lord, especially regarding our attitude and how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. May we have zeal for you, but may our zeal not be misplaced and uninformed. Help us to have the love of Christ, Lord, within our very bowels, toward our fellow members of the body of Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. The context of Mark chapter 9 is sad in many ways. Sad, first of all, because Jesus has predicted a couple of times his looming death, his humiliation upon the cross and all the suffering that would go with that. But secondly, there is in Mark chapter 9 sadness uh, because of the ambition and pride of the apostles. This sort of ambition and pride really leaks out here in chapter 9 as they feel the squeeze and the pressure of the looming reality of our Lord's suffering and humiliation. As we saw last week in verses 33 and 34, they even discussed along their way to Jerusalem who among them was the greatest. Really a new low point for the apostles and Jesus' lowest point of his life, they were trying to determine who would have the highest position in the coming kingdom. And if you remember last week, Jesus really responded with two noteworthy principles, one about position and another about possession. One lesson about position in verse 35 where Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This was a lesson about position, the rejection of oneself in order to elevate others. But Jesus also gave a lesson not only about position, but also a lesson about possession. Verse 37, Jesus said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. One lesson was about position, the rejection of oneself. The other about possession, the receiving of others who are the possession of Christ. We are to warmly receive 
our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And now we see in verses 38 through 42, as the discussion continues, that a sort of real-life event that occurred in the life of the Apostle John is conveyed by John to Jesus. And this particular event was that of an exorcist who was performing exorcisms in the name of Jesus. John, as he tells this event to Jesus, reveals that both ambition and pride left unchecked would lead to a sort of narrow exclusivism and misplaced zeal for God. Jesus shows John from this example and this incident in his life that our approach to other Christians, our approach and our attitude toward other Christians matters to God. Now, many Christians may say that attitude is not the most important thing. The most important thing is action. Your approach to your Christian relationships is not the most important thing, but your action, what you do to them. But really, your attitude, that's where it begins, right? Your approach. How do you view your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you view your relationship with those fellow brothers? Believers, your approach matters. Try telling a pilot that his approach to the airport to land the plane doesn't matter. His approach to the runway, proper, precise, and focused, determines whether or not he lands safely or crashes. It's absolutely a matter of life and death. And what I want to tell you this morning is that your approach and your attitude to other Christians can result, if you are not careful, in burning every relationship you have, crushing and crashing every relationship that you have. Not only that, but there's a warning in this passage in verse 42, that whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Pridefully opposing God's children results in God opposing you. Pridefully looking down on other Christians, treating them less than what they are, results in the judgment of God, the discipline of our Lord. Misplaced zeal counts as nothing before God. That's the warning of this passage. It is a sober warning, and the application of truth is supreme if you want to receive the fullest blessings of God upon your life. Someone once wrote, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I drink and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. Proverbs 19.2 says, even zeal is no good without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps misses the mark. The point this morning is don't miss the mark. Have the right approach to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Should you have zeal for Christ? Yes, but make sure that knowledge is attached to your zeal. And from Jesus' words and teaching in verses 38 through 42, we discover two Christ-like qualities for us to adopt in order to avoid misplaced zeal. Two Christ-like qualities to adopt in order to avoid misplaced zeal. They both start with the letter T. One is temperance, or what we could call self-control, and the other one is tolerance. Temperance and tolerance, we could say, are the twin towers of Christian love and service. And I dare say this morning that if some level of temperance and some level of tolerance is not present in your life, then you are not a true Christian this morning. We must have zeal for Christ, We must have conviction, know what we believe and why we believe it. But if your attitude and your approach to fellow Christians lacks temperance and tolerance, you are not a Christian and you prove that you do not belong to Christ. That's how serious this matter is. Jesus loves his body, doesn't he? Jesus loves the body of Christ. He calls it his very bride. So if you want to avoid misplaced zeal, which I assume that you do, after all that I've warned you about so far, you will adopt these two Christ-like qualities by the power of the Holy Spirit, temperance and tolerance. Let's begin by considering temperance in verses 38 and 39. 
And here we see that misplaced zeal is always an issue of lacking self-control, usually with one's words, and that's exactly what happens with the Apostle John. By conveying this incident, he really gets himself in trouble. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords. And John's words were turned against him. What he says there in verse 38, the confession. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now this is a confession that Jesus needs to temper because there was something about what John did that was unacceptable. There is a possible irony here, perhaps in an effort to change the subject regarding what Jesus just said in verse 37 about warmly and gently receiving others. John changes the subject and says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in in your name and we, we tried to stop him. John didn't want to talk about receiving others. As Jesus said in verse 37, Whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. John didn't want to talk about receiving others because he wanted to talk about his rejection of someone else. This is a misplaced zeal. Either he's telling Jesus this in an effort to confess what he did, wondering whether or not it was right, or he's confessing this to Jesus as a moment of pride to say, look what I did, Jesus. Look what I did for you, Jesus. But loose lips sink ships. And John's own words are going to be turned against him for trying to stop someone who was casting demons out in the name of Jesus. First of all, note very carefully that at least he calls him teacher. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons. This may indicate humility on John's part. Maybe uh, because Jesus just talked about receiving others in his name, That reminded John about the man who was casting demons out in Jesus' name. And maybe John's beginning to question, did he act rightly in that situation? Perhaps by calling Jesus teacher, he is seeking instruction on whether or not what he did was right or whether or not it was wrong. We know later that John was given the nickname the Apostle of Love. And so we know that John became a lover of other Christians But don't forget that he was one of the sons of thunder. And in fact, the other son of thunder, his brother James, was complicit in this incident because verse 38 says, Teacher, we saw someone casting demons out in your name and we tried to stop him. I think this was his brother James. The we was John and James. The sons of thunder, Boanerges, as they were called in Mark 3, verse 17, by our Lord. There is an irony here because you remember in Luke chapter 9 that it was James and John that sought to call fire down from heaven to consume the Samaritan village. What was their reason there in Luke 9? It was because that village did not receive Christ. They wanted to judge the Samaritans. And yet here's the irony. Here they are rejecting this man who has received Christ and who is casting demons out in Jesus' name. This is hypocritical on the surface of it. Notice verse 38 says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was casting out demons in your name. This is not like the seven sons of Sceva. They were not using Jesus' name as sort of a magical incantation with no power. This man successfully cast demons out with full power and apparently full conviction because he didn't just cast demons out, but he did it by saying the name of Jesus. It was powerful. It was convictional. It was successful. It was a mighty deed. It was a good deed. It was a deed that God obviously blessed. But John wasn't worried about the results. He was worried about something else. The end of verse 38 says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Do you see that? He was not following us. This is misplaced zeal. He doesn't say because he wasn't following you, Jesus, because he wasn't following us. He wasn't part of our camp, our denomination, our tribe, our group. This is a misplaced desire for self-glory, us, 
not Christ's glory. This is rooted in pride, judgmentalism, exclusivism, because this man was deflecting from their prestige and their power and their platform. Another irony exists. You remember back in chapter 9 when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the religious leaders are arguing with um, the disciples and uh, Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? Verse 16, and someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. That's quite ironic. Quite hypocritical. That James and John tried to stop a man from doing what the other apostles that were part of their band were unable to do. Because they lacked faith, therefore they lacked power, and they embarrassed the entire apostolic band. Their question is, did Jesus authorize or commission this man? Their question is, who told this man that what he is doing was okay to do? This is narrow exclusivism, hypocritical. So the exorcist had no part of the apostolic band. So what? God was using him, right? God was using him. They're trying to stop a man who was blessed by God, who was successful, who was convictional, who used the name of Jesus. What was the response of John the Baptist? Turn with me to John chapter 3. There was a similar incident that occurred, except this time John had an appropriate response. John 3, verse 25, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples, that is John the Baptist's disciples, and a Jew of our purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, speaking about Christ. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. He's getting all the attention. People are going to Jesus. He is baptizing. It's deflecting from your power and your platform and your prestige. One of the followers of John the Baptist is saying this. But notice John's answer, verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, that is Jesus must increase but I must decrease that was the appropriate response anytime there was some sort of competition between preachers or competition between ministries or churches the the appropriate response is John's Christ must increase I must decrease Christ must receive the glory not me but that was not the attitude of John We saw someone casting demons out in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. That's why they tried to stop him. This is over the top, overly harsh, misplaced zeal that lacked the Christian virtue of temperance. I mean, they just couldn't help themselves but being a police officer to other Christians. Trying to stop this man telling what he was doing was wrong, telling why he was doing what he was doing was wrong, and acting as if he had some sort of authority to stop a man who had the power of Jesus. Very shameful. What does it teach us? Well, it teaches us that misplaced zeal is always fueled by jealousy. That was the issue. Misplaced zeal is always fueled by jealousy, and number two, it always results in hypocrisy. If your zeal is misplaced, it's going to be misdirected in the wrong place and actually what it is going to reveal is that you are jealous and hypocritical of the success or the blessing of God upon others. That's what I meant when I said that John's words were used against him as a sword that pierced him. His reckless confession of what he did pridefully thinking he was going to receive some sort of approval instead He receives a command. We're talking about temperance. Temperance is the first Christian virtue to avoid misplaced zeal. We've seen the confession, but now notice the command, verse 39. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of him. Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't try to prevent the Lord's blessing. This is the simple point Jesus is making. If someone, anyone, any Christian does a mighty work or a mighty deed in Jesus' name, that is on behalf of Christ or under the glory of Christ or in the name of Christ, such a one isn't going to then turn around and speak evil of Jesus. This is the principle of 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Jesus is saying you shouldn't stop him. In fact, don't stop him. It's obvious that he is a believer in me. It's obvious he is a follower of me. There's no such thing as half Christians. There's only whole Christians. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that we will know them by their fruit. What is the evidence of this man's fruit? His ability to cast demons out, doing it convictionally, powerfully, successfully in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus says, John, you need to back off. Show some self-control. This is not about you. He's commanding John not to put up walls and barriers that Christ has torn down through the gospel. That we are not to pridefully oppose the work or the ministry or the proven effectiveness of other fellow believers. God has called his body to be one. Unity is one of the central themes of the Bible. Paul speaks about this. In Ephesians 2.14, For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. He has reconciled us to God in one body through the cross. John is failing to see the significance of that. And when you oppose those who do ministry in Jesus' name, when you oppose other Christians, when you, with a lack of self-control, try to control what they do, God himself will oppose you. We'll see this later in the passage. One quick principle, 1 Peter 5, 5, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See, it matters not how weak a Christian is, how immature they are, how unpolished you may think they are. They don't need your approval if they have God's approval. So Jesus is saying, back off. Do not stop him. Me coluete autan. Coluete is in the present tense. Do not stop him and continue to not stop him. This is a transcendent command in the present tense to convey a transcendent principle applying to the present all the time and in every situation we must constantly and presently even in this moment in our hearts guard against a lack of self-control and aggressively being judgmental of others or aggressively trying to discourage them from doing work for the Lord or serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The glory of God is at stake. Romans fifteen seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. John, you're out of line. You are lacking self-control. You do not have temperance. This is none of your business. This man might not be part of the apostolic band, but he's clearly a believer and a follower of me, and he operates under the power of God. Now take your Bibles and turn with me to Numbers chapter 11 in the Old Testament. We read this earlier for our public reading of Scripture, but in Numbers chapter 11 you have a similar incident which I think reveals to us that human nature doesn't change. It could be the church in the New Testament with an apostle, the apostle of love like John, (laughs) lacking temperance and having a judgmental and aggressively jealous spirit. Or it could be Old Testament saints in Israel. 
here in Numbers chapter 11, we read about two witnesses, Eldad and Medad. And of course, God has told Moses in the context that he is going to uh, ordain 70 men, elders, who the Spirit of God is going to rest upon. And so the people register and everyone is going to the tabernacle. But Eldad and Medad, for some reason, we read here in Numbers 11, they remained in the camp. Uh, We don't know the reason why. Perhaps it was an unwarranted reason. Uh, because they were expected to be at the tabernacle. Maybe they didn't hear the call to go to the tabernacle. But though they were in the wrong place, nevertheless, they prophesied. It says in verse 26, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, the other Medad. The spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And notice verse 27, a young little tattletale goes to tell Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. You see what they're doing? They're not, they're not following exactly what they were told to do. Look at what they're not doing right. I wonder who this man was. Probably someone that nobody wanted to hang out with. Because he lacked temperance, he was a busybody, and he constantly tried to control the spiritual lives of all of those in the camp. And I love this. Verse 28, Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, you know what, you're right. My Lord, Moses, stop them. Stop them from prophesying. This is not right. Even Joshua said that. But verse 29, Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? That's a penetrating question. You know, Jesus could have asked that to John. Okay, so you tried to stop a man that was exercising demons in my name. Let me ask you a question. Are you jealous for my sake or for your sake? Is this about the way you look, making you look bad because of his success? Are you jealous for my sake? Are you jealous for my glory? And then Moses says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Now, I love this statement by Moses because he doesn't really mean what he says. In one sense, there are prophets, priests, and kings. Not everyone is called to be a prophet. Moses is not abolishing the office of prophet. He himself was a prophet, and Moses was against false prophets. But you understand what he's doing to this young little tattletale. He's making the point. I would rather all of God's people prophesy, because then the truth would be out. The issue you're bringing to me, that you want me to adjudicate, is not that big of a deal. Don't. Stop them from faithfully prophesying God's truth. So what? They're in the wrong place. They should be here. Yes, I admit that. But would that all of God's people were prophets. Perhaps Eldad and Medad were ignorant, right? Perhaps perhaps they just didn't know where they were supposed to be when they were supposed to be there. Moses is gentle to them. He receives their prophesying. In fact, it says they returned to the camp. They returned to the camp. John and James don't appear to be jealous for the Lord's sake here in Mark chapter 9. They appear to be jealous for their own sake and their own glory because this man is able to do what some in their own apostolic band were unable to do. And so the first lesson that we learn is a lesson regarding temperance. The first Christ-like virtue or quality that God's people should adopt is that of temperance, that is self-control. Have a bigger perspective on what God is doing in and among His people and in ministries and in churches and in the world. And if someone is naming the name of Christ and is a true believer, you don't have to slander them or try to stop them from doing the Lord's work. 
And such really leads to a second Christ-like virtue or quality to adopt. If we are going to avoid misplaced zeal, not only must we be marked by temperance, but secondly, we must be marked by tolerance. And I've already sort of implied that here. We see this in verses 40 through 42. Notice Jesus gives a consideration in verses 40 and 41. The word for there in verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. That word for is an explanatory term to say, let me flesh this out for you a little bit more. The quality driving temperance, self-control, is tolerance. For the one who is not against us, Jesus says, is for us. Notice how closely Jesus associates himself with his followers. One who is not against us is for us. Jesus is associating with all of his people. His point is that nobody is neutral. So if a Christian lives and does in Jesus' name, he's obviously not against us, which means he's obviously for Christ. The opposite of this principle was conveyed in Matthew twelve thirty: whoever is not with me is against me. Here Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Not only should we show temperance and not rejecting other Christians out of hand, but we must also receive them with our hands because Christ has received them. They are part of us. They are part of the body of Christ. This is a principle of tolerance. The issue is not is so-and-so one of our party, one of our denomination, one of our congregation, one of our tribe. No, the question is, is such a one part of the body of Christ? Is he of us? For the one who is not against us is for us, and therefore he should be received. He should be tolerated. This is true even in extreme cases. This principle of tolerance is true in very extreme cases. Turn with me to Philippians Chapter 1, I'll show you a very extreme case. Paul is in prison, and Paul says this in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Imagine that. There were some who preached the gospel faithfully and accurately who did it from the wrong motives. And in fact, in this context, it was hurting the Apostle Paul. It was making his imprisonment that much more difficult. It was affecting his ministry. It was affecting the people that had faith in him and trusted in him as a credible witness for the gospel. But there were other preachers who were conducting ministry in a way that was slandering Paul. Misplaced zeal. And Paul says others do it from goodwill. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. I'm here in prison for the defense of the gospel. I'm witnessing to everyone who comes to the cell block. But the former, verse 17, proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Such a sad thing. I mean, these people obviously had misplaced zeal. And while Paul doesn't approve that misplaced zeal, he clearly condemns it. He says their motives were rooted in selfish ambition and jealousy and rivalry rivalry and all sorts of ungodly things. Yet, at the end of the day, he says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul says, I'll tolerate even those wicked people who are personally trying to harm me, who personally try to impede my progress of advancing the gospel by their actions, by their attitude, by the way they try to control people. These are men who were leaders in the church. Other preachers of the gospel. Paul said, as long as they preach the true gospel... I'll rejoice in that. I'll accept my chains. I'll accept my suffering. I'll do it for Christ. I'll even tolerate that for the sake of Christ. What a a lesson that is to us, isn't it? Not to be guilty of being exclusive of others where Christ is inclusive of them. 
Because making Christ known is more important than petty party preferences or distinctly determined denominationalism. You can probably think about it this way. Redemptive history really has various seasons. And the best way to view this is to view the fact that we are living in the warm season, not the winter of cold exclusivism. We plant the gospel with other fellow believers and so long as they are doing ministry alongside of us that is faithful, we're not exclusive to them. We don't cast them off. 2 Corinthians 10.7 says, If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here in verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Tolerate them. Accept them. The judgmental season of God's fiery exclusion of unbelievers will come. We have to be very careful not to uproot some of the wheat along with the tares. That's what Jesus says. Be tolerant of other Christians. And verse 41 offers more of an explanation. Again, the word for, another explanatory word for, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Further consideration. Not only are we to embrace others who are different than us, we're not to simply tolerate them and put up with them, but we are to serve them even as they serve us. Whoever gives you a cup of water. This is an illustration. Any gift, any act of kindness, any service is deemed by God a gift when it's given by one believer to another believer. And it's equivalent to serving Christ himself. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What did Jesus say in Matthew 25, 40? Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me also. Right? Our union with Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 23, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And we are part of the body of Christ. We are the possession of God. 1 Peter 2.9 We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 So that the Heidelberg 1 Catechism asks, What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with both soul and body and in life and death to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that is true about you and it is true about other fellow Christians. So that when they give you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, they won't lose their reward, you won't lose your reward if you serve them the same. Please understand, Jesus is speaking against the sin of intolerance. I mean, who doesn't care for one's own body? Well, when you're thirsty, you give yourself a drink. Here Jesus is saying, care for the body of Christ. Show tolerance. Pray for the body of Christ. Support the body of Christ. Do not have a posture of folded arms toward other fellow believers, even if they're different than you, but of open arms embracing them Because God sees the smallest, most humble act of kindness. The universe 41 says, you will by no means lose your reward. By embracing, serving, accepting, encouraging other fellow believers, no matter how weak, no matter how unpolished, God sees that. God sees that. And on the last day, we will say to God, when did we feed him when he was hungry? This is Matthew 25. When did we give him drink when he was thirsty? When did we clothe him? And Jesus says, when you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. You will have your reward in heaven.
He will say to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Tolerance is an issue of our own salvation. That's the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 25. Have you considered that? That's the consideration Jesus is giving about tolerance in verses 40 and 41. To the degree that you tolerate other Christians, embrace them, accept them, don't reject them, is to the degree that Christ will receive or reject you because it reveals whether or not you have the heart of God. So we're talking about two Christ-like virtues to avoid misplaced zeal. The first one is temperance, self-control. The second is tolerance, where Jesus is given the consideration. Now notice the caution, verse 42. Some think it goes with the other verses, but I think it goes with verses 38 through 41. Jesus says, whoever calls as one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. That's quite a caution. Sort of the negative side of verse 37, right? Whoever receives one such child of my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 42 is the negative side of that. Verse 42 is the negative side of verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here's the negative side. Here's the flip side. Here's the other side of the coin. And I also want you to know, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, cast into the sea. Notice Jesus refers to Christians as little ones. It's not referring to little children. It's figurative to say that God's people are like his little children. No matter how weak, no matter how innocent, no matter how minimal their knowledge, no matter how insignificant their gifts, in God's eyes, he is their father. They are their little he they are his little ones. Jesus is saying, Don't mess with the king's kids. All are precious in his sight. To cause one of these little ones to sin or to stumble is so serious that Jesus says it is preferable that he die a sort of death that no one, no one would want to die, being drowned in the sea. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. That's what God told Abraham. That applies to God's people today. God blesses those who bless God's people. God curses those, dishonors those who dishonor God's people. Or Psalm 105, verse 15, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. God takes it personal when his people are harmed, particularly the prophets of God, the preachers of God who proclaim his truth. Zechariah 2, 8, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. God says that to his people. Here he says, Whoever calls as one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Of course, this was a farming culture, right? Grain was ground by a, a heavy millstone that produced flour. And there were, there were two millstones. A top millstone had a hole in the top of it and grain was poured down through. That was the one that was turning about, usually drawn by an ox or, or a donkey. Some big beast would, would pull it around and it would smash the grain on the lower rock, creating flour. That sort of millstone, that great millstone, the one that can only be turned by an animal, that heavy millstone, Jesus says, will be hung around the neck of all of those who calls even one of God's little ones to sin. It's a lesser judgment of God to tie a millstone around that person's neck and to throw him into the bottom of the sea. By the way, this wouldn't have been taken lightly in Jewish literature. The depths of the sea were the unknown territory of destruction and darkness and God's displeasure. This metaphor 
is the strongest language possible for Jesus to use to say this, don't you dare reject one of my true believers. You better be very careful how you treat other Christians. Even the weakest, even the littlest, even the most immature, watch your words, watch your actions because I will oppose you to your face and the type of opposition you will receive, it would be, it would be preferable to be drowned with a millstone around your neck than to get what you're going to get. It's the severest of language. And you say, well, what does that mean, verse 42? To cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Well, obviously, this is a true believer because Jesus says, one who believes in me. And the antecedent is that exorcist, proving that he was a believer. But whoever, like this exorcist, believes in me, if you cause that little one to sin, it's a serious thing. So how do we avoid causing a little one to sin? Scandalizine, to stumble, or to offend. Well, we need to avoid demeaning the service of others to Christ, the spiritual accomplishments of others, the spiritual growth of others. Don't demean that. That's to discourage that poor Christian and discourage them maybe to the point that they no longer grow because they don't have your approval and your encouragement. Don't make them feel less than you because they don't live up to your personal standards. That's to cause them to sin because now they're trying to live up to some man-made rules and regulations. Don't do that. Don't remove their zeal by your misplaced zeal. Here it is. Jesus is warning against spiritual bullyism. Do not think you are the greatest in the kingdom. I know that's what you discussed along the way. Don't you dare think that you're the greatest in the kingdom. That is the wrong attitude to have. This comes straight from the lips of our Lord. You realize that? Jesus says it's preferable for a great millstone to be hung around your neck and you to be thrown into the sea than to receive what I'm going to oppose you with. This isn't something that someone said Jesus said. This is something that came right from his lips. The principle of Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of honor. I'm sorry, the reward for humility And fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Well, that would be true because God is opposed to the proud. What you do to or what you do for others, you do to Christ. And you do that both for your good or for your bad. Verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You won't lose your reward if... You treat others the way that you would treat Christ. It's for your good. You won't lose your reward, but it's also to your bad. You don't treat others that way, and it's better, verse 42, that a great millstone is hung around your neck and you are thrown into the sea. You know, this is why Clement, Clement of Rome, used verse 42 in the first century. The last decade of the first century, he used verse 42 as a warning against schisms in the church. Divisions, factions. And as we're going to see later in this passage, Jesus says, for example, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. What's Jesus talking about? There he's talking about personal holiness. It's better to rip off parts of your body in order to be spiritually and personally and individually pure and holy than to enter hell with all your body parts. But here in verse 42, he's speaking about collective holiness. He's speaking about the body of Christ and how it matters how we treat the body of Christ. Does it make any sense 
to watch a man walk down the road smacking himself with his hand in in the head or punching himself in the stomach with his fist. How much less sense does it make for different parts of the body of whom we are, we compose the body of Christ to beat up other Christians, to hurt other Christians, to not love other Christians, to not serve other Christians. God has no tolerance for our intolerance of other Christians. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. John 13, verse 20. You can tempt others to sin by discouraging them. You can tempt others to sin by your bad example, maybe a sinful lifestyle. You know, Peter says that elders are to be an example to the flock. That means they aren't to be extinguishers of fiery holiness by being legalistic and overly demanding and harsh on the people of God, that is to cause one of the little ones to sin because it discourages their spiritual life. They don't want to be part of something. They're just going to get beat up. Every time the word of God is brought up, they're beat up. They're beat down. Now, what does Hebrews say? It says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but look for ways to encourage one another. Look for ways to edify one another. We are to love each other. We're to forgive each other. We're not to be overly harsh with each other. Paul said, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Don't cause them to stumble course that can be done in extreme methods i've shared with you before story of um, dr don whitney he's been to this church to preach at a little conference and professor of mine in seminary and he told the story one time to us in class of a young minister who uh, was having trouble in his church and some of the people were opposing him and they were against him and so they decided to plot to set him up for failure and they sent a young lady to his office to seduce him and it worked. One slip up and the young minister was out of the ministry. Sent by a committee of the church to cause one of God's little ones to stumble. It's the most sinister thing I've ever heard of. But you do realize that indirectly we can cause other brothers and sisters in Christ to sin. We teach legalism, things that aren't in the Bible and demand it of others, zapping the zeal of other Christians, always thinking that we're right on every issue, never having any tolerance for any other viewpoint. Such is so sinful that Jesus gives the caution What I'm going to do to you is far worse than if I put a millstone around your neck and drown you in the depth of the sea. Very serious. Now let me add my own caution. I want to be very clear this morning. This passage does not endorse a tolerance for the silly and the sappy and the superficial Christianity that we see alive and well today. This is not an endorsement of another sin. This is not a a compromising of our beliefs, a sort of spineless, wishy-washy compromising. No, we are to speak the truth. We're to speak it in love, but we are to speak the truth. What this is, is a certain posture that says, I'm going to be zealous for God on the most important and essential matters, matters of which I'm willing to die for. But I'm not going to be too quick to destroy a relationship with another Christian because they have a different viewpoint on something than me, on something non-essential. Let me give you an example. Presbyterians believe in covenantal infant baptism. Baptists believe in immersion only of professing believers. Now, one is right and one is wrong. 
There's no way the Bible can endorse both of those positions. Either the Bible says that it is okay for the children of believers to be baptized as infants as a sign of God's promise, or the Bible teaches that we are only to baptize professing adults who make a valid confession. So your position on baptism is not insignificant. However, your position on baptism, you would agree, is not the sum total of what makes you a Christian. We are to be in essential agreement on essential areas. But where we can minister the gospel together, where we can effectively serve the kingdom of Christ together, even if it's a difference on baptism, is the type of tolerance that Jesus is speaking about here. You see, the lack of toleration that Jesus speaks about assumes that all positions different than our own must divide us. That's what Jesus is warning against. It's not the same thing as saying that it doesn't matter what we believe. Denying ultimate truth is equally, if not more so, sinful. But here's the question I would pose. Do you have the depth of spiritual maturity and love to see what is essential to divide over and what is non-essential that you shouldn't divide over? That's the point. That's not always easy. Jesus is simply calling here for a sort of toleration that doesn't destroy true Christian relationships over matters that are not of the most important level. Jesus says, stop trying to stop those who are doing the work of Christ like this exorcist. We are to draw the line where the Bible draws the line, but we are to erase the line where the Bible has no line. We don't create our own lines. We aren't to be marked by pridefulness and pettiness, but humility. You know why? Because it's impossible to be right on every issue. It's impossible. And even where we are right and we know that we're right, we are to give others the opportunity to grow, not by rejecting them, but by embracing them and seeking to influence them with the Word of God. We aren't just to tolerate people, we're to tie ourselves to other Christians. Embrace them. Eternity will work out the other differences. We are to be so careful to understand the teaching of Christ on this particular matter. matter. To possess zeal, but make sure that it's zeal attached with knowledge. Because knowledge is power. Ignorance is weakness. And misplaced zeal is no good without knowledge. Proverbs 19.2 We are not to say, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat, drink what I drink, look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then I'll fellowship with you. Rather, we are to say this, do you belong to Christ? If you belong to Christ, then I belong to you and you belong to me. Let us tolerate one another, love each other, accept one another, agree to disagree on the non-essentials, and not divide over issues that are to bring us together in Christ. May the Lord help us do this. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words in Mark's gospel. This has been such a rich gospel to study, to remind us of, Lord, our duty to love you, but also to love others to accept others, to embrace others, to receive others, to serve others, to not discourage other Christians. Lord, we know that we're to fight over the essential matters, but the non-essential matters, Lord, we are to be gracious and charitable, loving. We're to help our brothers in Christ where we think they're weak or immature. We're not to belittle them, discourage them, write them off, divide over issues that aren't ultimately of eternal significance. This is such a difficult balance to have, and Lord, we confess that to you. I confess to you it's difficult for me to exemplify the sort of humility that your word requires, but you require it of all of us. 
And Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, by your grace to be the humble servants you've called us to be so that we are jealous for Christ's sake, not for our own sakes. And so that we are zealous as well for Christ's sake and we don't have misplaced zeal. Help us with this, we pray, in the blessed name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.